Exception. I'm Aaron Good, and today I am speaking with Dick Russell. He is a prolific researcher and the author of 15 books, including five co-authored with former Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura, three of which became New York Times bestsellers. He's currently serving as a researcher and commentator for a 10-part podcast series about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, hosted by Rob Reiner and Soledad O'Brien to coincide with the 60th anniversary. He's the author of two groundbreaking books on the subject. These include The Man Who Knew Too Much, about JFK assassination figure Richard Case Miguel, and the 2005 book On the Trail of the JFK Assassins, which is being updated with a new edition to be released in November 2023. The topic of today's conversation is his latest book, The Real RFK Jr., Trials of a Truth Warrior. It's an intimate biography of Robert Kennedy Jr., who, as you may know, is running for president in the 2024 election. Dick Russell, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Aaron. Good to be with you today. Well, I have wanted to have you on the show for uh, a long time uh, because I uh, read in years past. I read um, your books on the Kennedy assassination, and I knew you had written some articles in the past that I'd read or co-written them also, which we're going to talk about. Uh, so I thought it was fascinating when you were the person who'd written this new biography on RFK Jr. And we share the same publisher, Tony Lyons, along with Robert Kennedy Jr. himself, also publishes yep. books at Skyhorse. Um, could you tell us about your new biography and how you came to know uh, Robert Kennedy Jr.? Yeah, sure. Well, I've, I've known Bobby for a long time. In fact, I think we met first in 1998 when I was uh, doing a book on the, on the called Eye of the Whale, which was about the California gray whales and in particular how their habitat was being threatened in Baja, California and Mexico by this industrial salt works that Mitsubishi and the Mexican government were planning. And, and these were like magical whales. I mean, unbelievably, they began coming up to people in that lagoon in 1973 and, uh, and increasingly so ever since. And nobody knows why, but the mother whales would come up and introduce the, their newborns to you that they had just had in the lagoon. And it was just an incredible experience. And Bobby had had, had that experience as well as a lawyer for the Natural Resources Defense Council. So I ended up interviewing him for the book, and um, and then we were together a couple of times at at the lagoon to uh, experience these magical animals, and and then uh, it was the beginning of a what became a, a really close friendship. We uh, we also had in common that that um, we loved this particular fish, the Atlantic striped bass, which I'd been very involved in saving uh, back in the 1980s when they were endangered by by commercial fishing and 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 pollution of their habitat and. That was kind of my awakening to the environment. I was a summer fisherman and and loved fishing for this fish, and and um, so did he on the Hudson River. So I wrote another book called Striper Wars, an American fish story, the story of that 
campaign, which ended up very successful. And I interviewed him for that. So, you know, that was the beginning. And then we worked together on projects. Um, I helped him a little bit with his, his book, Crimes Against Nature. Uh, we did a piece together for Rolling Stone on the, the, the election of 2004, where it was pretty good evidence that votes were diverted to get Bush elected in Ohio against John Kerry. Um, and then later, you know, we also worked together on, on a book I did on climate change, where he wrote the introduction to two volumes, well, two different editions of, of Horsemen of the Apocalypse, where I looked at the big oil moguls and what they were doing and how long they'd known about the fact that climate change was imperiling our planet. So um, anyway, there were all these things. And, and then, um, so we were good friends by the time um, he got involved in, in certainly by the time he got very involved in, in the COVID situation in 2020. And uh, I was just really, um, really upset that he was being portrayed as he was in the, in the big media, just vilified as crazy and anti-vaxxer, all these stereotypes that were put upon him, which were really unfair and, and not true. So I guess it was, yeah, a year ago almost, um, Tony Lyons at Skyhorse, who I'd worked with on many of my books for a long time, um, we talked about the possibility that there should be a biography of Bobby and, and that maybe I would write it. And Tony said, I know you're really busy, but would you consider it? And, and because of how he'd been treated and my feeling that people really needed to know who this guy was as an environmental hero, really, an advocate for many, many years and what he'd been through in his life that made him into who he was, uh, that I said, yeah, I'll do it. At that point, I should add that he was not yet running for president. So this wasn't intended as a, quote, campaign biography. But I'm hoping, you know, now that it's it's out, the real RFK Jr., it's called, um, it'll get, get some people interested in who he is and hopefully support him. Yes, I read the book, and it it's much more – I mean, I, I read it now, and I can compare it to Obama's Dreams from My Father, which is, seems like such a PR – a self PR puff piece in a way. Uh, and you compare what uh, Bobby has been doing all these years to, to like, oh, to Obama, who seems to have been sort of, I don't even know what, like creating a legend for himself uh, in retrospect, when you look at like, well, what did he actually do all those times? But Bobby won. I mean, he, he had some victories against corporate Titans that uh, are hard to compare to any, other major political figure, really, I mean, uh, which I think speaks to the heart of our problem at this time is that corporate corruption has corrupted all of our institutions and especially our foreign policy. Um, could you explain some of these victories that he's had over corporate titans uh, like DuPont and Monsanto? Yeah, I mean, he's taken on the big ones and he's done that ever since he got into working as, a, as an environmental lawyer and, and advocate on the Hudson River. And that came out of, you know, he spent, we can talk about this later too, if you want, but I mean, he spent years of really in agony, you know, and, and uh, uh, after his father's assassination and, and his uncles and, and, you know, trying to make a life for himself, but having a really hard time doing it. And when he finally came out of that uh, in, in the early 1980s, uh, he got into environmental work and started became part of this organization called Riverkeeper, and that was on the Hudson, which he'd grown up. You know, his father took him there, and at that time, 
you know, it was the most polluted river, one of them, certainly along with Lake Erie, right? The most polluted area, waterway in the country. And and everybody kind of written the Hudson off as, as hopeless. Well, Bobby and, and his partner uh, on, the, on the Riverkeeper, John Cronin, uh, ended up filing, gosh, I think it was 500 lawsuits altogether, maybe not all of on the Hudson, but a lot, and taking on ExxonMobil, which was dumping PCBs, and, and taking on uh, Monsanto, uh, which, interestingly enough, I find it very interesting that when he was growing up and he was a kid, um, Rachel Carson wrote a book uh, on, on uh, called Silent Spring, which was really vitally important in getting DDT the pesticide outlawed in the United States. And she was vilified, much like Bobby would be years later. You know, the media took her on. Time Magazine hated her. Um, certainly all the chemical companies were against her. But she was out there, and, and his, his father and his uncle, you know, really portrayed her as what she was, what she was doing was a great thing. And um, ultimately, DDT was banned in 1973. She had died in 1964. But... Um, he never forgot that, and Monsanto was the big company that was uh, going after her. So it's it's a very interesting you know segue to 2018, 2017, when Bobby became part of a legal team that took on Monsanto and what it was doing to uh, especially to individuals who were getting non-Hodgkin's lymphoma after spraying uh, Roundup, uh, this this toxic pesticide with full of glyphosate which is still, you know, happening to some degree, um, and, uh, and winning huge settlements against the company for doing that. Monsanto had just been bought by Bayer at that time, and uh, the aspirin company, right? And, uh, and they, were, uh, they had to pay, I think it was, well, the first settlement was $1.98 billion, I believe. Eventually, the courts toned it down, but you know, it was a really big deal. And I think for him, you know, a full circle, to taking on uh, a company that was really evil and and uh, doing something about it. So that's just a couple of examples. We can talk about more if you want. But you know, DuPont was another that he took on in West Virginia, and and uh, he took on the people doing mountaintop mining. And uh, he wasn't afraid of of these companies, and was such a good lawyer and did so much study that you know it was, he was very successful in in uh, in stopping a lot of this this pollution that was affecting lots of people and habitat. Right. The, I mean, my whole family's from West Virginia and the environmental devastation of that state, especially in the, so yeah. in the southern part of it, is uh, it's kind of beyond imagining uh, or it's, it's sort of hidden away from most Americans. It's really, it's really horrific. And, you know, it's impressive that he takes on these companies like this because that's not that's the american power structure really is these huge yeah. corporate entities they own both parties and uh it's you know this he's he's unique in going explicitly at them i mean and having achieved some victories over them now in bobby's you know robert kennedy jr he has a very famous name and his uncle and father were both assassinated and of course this has got to be a very painful subject for him, as you uh, detail in the book, even more so for, uh, I mean, just as much for other people in the family. I mean, I was uh, surprised or uh, e even at this point by Ted Kennedy's reaction when Bobby tried to talk to him near the end of his life and Ted couldn't even say anything yeah. about it. He was like, the key, he's, he 
became choked up and uh, couldn't speak on the subject. Yeah. So it's, I feel like that's kind of a metaphor for the United States public in a way, because we, we haven't ever been able to adjudicate these, these things. How, so, and I knew that you had written these books on the Kennedy assassination by the, uh, either it was either in 04 or it was in the years when I started to look more into these areas, like after the Obama election. But, yeah. but I had noticed what registered in my mind was that since you had, if you had co-authored these articles with him on, on Ohio, and I think someone, you'd done some work with him on environmental articles too, as you'd said, and, and, and books and yeah. so on, that the subject of, of Dallas and, you know, must have come up at some point. And so he must have been clued in on these things. So I thought that was important because if you're going to write about Ohio 2004, that really does get into the realm of these state crimes against democracy or whatever you want to call them. These are elite conspiratorial activities that we in America, through all of our institutions, are told not to think this way, to like not to accuse the establishment or the governance, the, the regime we live under of being like corrupt and criminal. But he was going right at them. Did he, how, how did you approach these subjects with him prior? I mean, in 2008 or so, he reads JFK and the unspeakable, but he had to, you, you, the subjects must've come up before then. How did you guys, how did you and him first start to ever discuss these uh, subjects? Yeah, well, it's an interesting story because I didn't feel, I mean, I had written my first book on the assassination and I'm, I'm probably was the, I was the first journalist really on the, on the trail going out there in the 1970s when I was basically you know, still in my 20s uh, and doing investigative pieces for the Village Voice and, and Harper's Weekly and others, uh, interviewing people about what they knew about what really happened on November 22nd, 1963. And uh, so then I wrote this book in 1992 called The Man Who Knew Too Much, which we can talk about later if you want, but it was a huge tome expose of, of a, what I considered a uh, a coup d'etat uh, in taking out President Kennedy. And I knew a lot about Bobby's father's assassination, too. I'd, I'd looked into that. I'd never written a book about it, but I knew about it. But in the early years of my relationship with Bobby, I didn't feel comfortable about bringing that up because I knew it was painful. I didn't really have anything I wanted from him about it. Um, I, I knew how much it, you know, it had devastated him and his family. And and our relationship was really about the environment. And so I I didn't talk about it for a long time. The only thing I said, I think it was in 2005, we were going to be on the same stage together in San Francisco. And I was moderating a panel and, and asking him questions. And there were a thousand people in the audience. And and uh, so I told him before that, at my wife's suggestion, you know, hey, you know, I wrote this uh, in case it comes up. I thought maybe somebody's going to ask a question. And I don't want him caught off guard if he doesn't know anything about it. I said, you know, I wrote this major book about the assassination of your uncle. And all he said was, okay. So that was it until uh, 2013, which was the 50th anniversary. This year is the 60th. And uh, when he had read JFK and the Unspeakable, he was starting to really be willing to question what had happened, the official narrative. And for a long time, nobody in his family wanted to go there. They didn't want to see the, they'd run out of the room when the Zapruder film showed, all these things, right? And, uh, but he wanted to know what I knew. And he started to ask me questions and we started to really talk about it. And um, so, you know, it, it didn't dominate our 
our, our lives in terms of our, our relationship. But, but um, you know, I, I did write about, I wrote two chapters in, in the biography uh, about his change, really, his, how he came to start to question what had happened and realized that the likelihood the CIA was involved to some degree and certainly the mafia and the Cuban exiles and the right wing in this country. So uh, I wrote about it, and uh, I remember I, I, I took him to meet uh, a few years ago. I took him to meet one of the people that I'd spoken with about it at some length about his uncle's assassination. And, and on the way back from that trip, he said, "You know, I'm going to go see uh, I'm going to go see Sirhan in prison." And I went, "Wow, <laughs> you are!" And he did. He went to visit. The man accused of killing and convicted of killing his father in 1968 in the Ambassador Hotel uh, Pantry, and and um, had spent three hours in prison with Sirhan. I write about this in, in the biography, and uh, his wife waited outside and to give him moral support afterwards. And and it was indeed a very wrenching, you know, several hours. The thing that he came away with, though, was that Sirhan was was felt terrible about having that, the fact that that happened. But by then, Bobby knew, because it, it's proven beyond a, a doubt, even though a lot of people don't realize this to this day, but, but Sirhan was firing from the front, and none of his bullets hit Senator Kennedy. They all either hit other people, like Paul Schrade, Bobby's, uh, Robert Kennedy's friend, who recently passed away, or they went into the, into the wall of the pantry. And he was really killed from behind, most likely by a security guard, so-called security guard, who was hired that night, uh, had worked at Lockheed and and uh, had just come on to the scene and admittedly didn't like Robert Kennedy. His name was Thane Eugene Cesar, again, who's passed away now. But um, the thing that Bobby realized, too, was that uh, Sirhan didn't, he, he said this right from the beginning, at his trial even, where he was convicted, that he didn't remember anything. He didn't remember walking into the pantry that night. And uh, he told Bobby that again, and he didn't know why he didn't remember. Uh, he didn't recall having been given a trigger word to go in, but I believe that's what happened. And I, I think Bobby does too, that Sirhan was what we call a Manchurian candidate, a programmed killer. And uh, there was that movie back in 1962 and famous book about a guy who, you know, actually is programmed to assassinate a presidential candidate. Oddly, I'll mention this too. Just uh, the the, uh, uh, the the when when Robert Kennedy was killed, he was staying at the home in Malibu of John Frankenheimer, who directed that movie, The Manchurian Candidate. So it's kind of a weird weird thing, right? Um, but there was a program called MK Ultra that the CIA had. Most of all their files were destroyed in 1973, but that was a program to manipulate human behavior. Through hypnosis and through drugs, and and uh, it had been going on for a long time. The military had a program similar to that, and they were working on creating, being able to, to create assassins, people who would uh, not even know what they'd done, but have no memory of it, but walk in and take somebody out. So uh, maybe uh, this is a long-winded answer, but um, I think that Bobby has has come to believe that the influence of the CIA, which began to be out, totally out of control at that time in the, in the 1960s, but certainly continued uh, to this day. And uh, 
been involved in a lot of things that uh, he feels have got to change, and he will change if he becomes president. Yes, this to me is why his candidacy is very important, uh, because if you look back at U.S. history in that post-World War II era, you know, the emergence of this kind of blob of, um, you know, of this of the power in the United States, it has disparate parts, like the CIA, like the the military, the military industrial complex, the uh, cor corporate America, Wall Street, and then there's the role of organized crime uh, in U.S. society and then globally as well. When you look at how drug traffic funds CIA operations uh, in many in many instances. And additionally, the drug drug money probably ends up in the Western financial system, eventually benefiting Wall Street as well. It's just one big system that's rather horrifying. And uh, the Kennedys were going after them more than any other. I mean, they were going after the different parts. They didn't so much articulate that it was so interrelated. But Bobby has said things, RFK Jr. has said things to that effect that like, well, my father was going after the mob and he was trying to wrestle with the CIA and came to realize that it was the same thing. <laughs> I heard yeah. him say something to that effect in an interview, which is really a profound statement uh, that is more incisive analysis, really from a left wing perspective than you hear from other people. But that sort of gets drowned out. And, you know, he, they, they clashed with U.S. Steel. They fired people like Lyman Lemnitzer, uh, fire people like Alan Dulles. I mean, they, they, they try to end the Cold War. I mean, they were really working at the going at the heart of this 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 beast, what, what people call the deep state now, um, and no one has done anything about this. All these forces have metastasized in American life, and I mean, I'm more of a socialist, and I get it that RFK Jr. is not, but I mean, to me, these things are all like the the foreign policy is related to all these other areas that he's going at because it's all corporate. It, it's all of these corporate. It's corporate greed that has has fueled all of this. Uh, is how do, how do you think that his background makes him uniquely positioned to want to do something about this? Because some people are saying like, well, they don't think he's serious about taking these forces on. But I mean, I haven't seen a, a politician whose biography in what he did with his own life and then his personal history with his parents like makes him makes somebody as suited to do what needs to be done right at this moment when the empire is going away anyway. So, I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on how Bobby uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. is able to take on these forces or his sincerity about it? Oh, yeah. I mean, his, his sincerity are really beyond question. And it, and it certainly comes from his personal experience. You know, I mean, he was a kid during the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, when, you know, if, if uh, his father and his uncle hadn't hadn't stopped the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Lemnitzer and others, from uh, their desire to you know, to bomb Cuba and, and, and uh, you know, we would have had a nuclear war and you and I wouldn't be sitting here and talking most likely today. It would have been a, a disaster, an unimaginable disaster. And, and you know, out of that, um, the Kennedys, uh, certainly JFK and then Robert Kennedy later, um, they really changed. I mean, what I most admire about them was their ability, their willingness to, to grow in office, actually, I guess I'd say. You know, I mean, JFK came in as a cold warrior. You know, we had to we had to be tough. We were up against the Russians. But then, you know, by the end of his life, he was 
he was really looking at for we had to have some kind of world peace. And he spoke about it in summer of 63 at American University that if we don't do this, you know, and we keep doing nuclear testing in the atmosphere, we're just going to we're going to destroy ourselves and, and it's not worth it. And so, you know, he, he came to an accommodation with, he said, I mean, the CIA and the mafia had been working to kill Fidel Castro, which finally came out in the, in the mid-1970s. But, you know, they were wedded in this uh, because they had common interests. The mob wanted their casinos back. The CIA, you know, wanted, wanted to get rid of, get rid of, get rid of communism, they thought, on, on 90 miles away from our shores. Anyway, Bobby was a kid during this whole period. And I think it, he saw that uh, without what his uncle and his father had done, uh, he wouldn't be alive today to talk about it. And, and so therefore, he has taken a, a very interesting stand, for example, on the Ukraine war situation, where, where he doesn't, he, he can't stand Putin. He's not saying Putin's a good guy. He knows he's a monster. But at the same time, he realizes that, you know, we promised, the U.S. promised not to increase the number of states near the Russian border as members of NATO. And yet we went back on that promise. And, and we also put, you know, helped put nuclear armed uh, uh, missiles, you know, not too far from the, from the Russian border in Ukraine. And so in that sense, he feels like Putin had his own, his justification in a sense for doing what he did. And in the course of that, you know, 330,000 Ukrainian young people have, have died and many, you know, and many, many more in the cities. And so he, he says that he believes that he could help forge a peace and that Russia has always been said that they would, you know, go for that. And I think that again, comes out of the experience that, that he had, or at least that he saw his, his, uh, his uncle and his father do with the missile crisis. So there's that that makes him uniquely qualified. And then, you know, he was around and, and uh, taking part in all those dinner table conversations that the Kennedys were famous for, you know, where, where debate was encouraged. And uh, they used to fight and argue. And, and the, the, his dad encouraged the, he had 10 siblings, you know, and encouraged them to really go at it with each other and hash things out. And, and that's one thing that, of course, is missing today. I mean, Bobby has tried to debate people time and again on, on issues of today, and especially in the public health area, and, and nobody will do it uh, because, I don't know, I mean, they, they, for one thing, they probably know that he's, he's educated himself and might, might destroy them in a debate, which is probably true. But, you know, he's just asking for open dialogue. He's, he's asking for, you know, to people to come together across party lines and, and work for a common ground and Heal the divide in this country, which is is his campaign slogan. So, uh, does that answer your question? I mean, I just think he's, you know, he he was tremendously influenced and still talks a lot about his his quotes, his father and his uncle, and wants to. He's a Kennedy Democrat, as he puts it. He's not a a Democrat as we see today, you know. Where whereas he says the the neocons are back in power, the ones who you know got us into Iraq on false pretenses and. And there they are pushing this uh, agenda to, to keep the Ukraine war, you know, moving along. So anyway, I think that uh, he's well aware of all that and ready to ready to fight it.
aware on U.S. foreign policy, he seems to be, he, he seems to have ta uh, broken slightly with the, his uncle, uh, is towards Israel. So he's taken, a lot of people on the left are dismayed if they were interested. I mean, some of these people are just, are bad faith actors and they are, uh, uh, you know, it's hard to know what to make of everybody online. But he does take a, he does sort of re echo a lot of like, pro-Israel talking points that are rather dubious in his defense of, of Israel. Do you think that the fact that for most of his life he believed that a Palestinian had killed his father, that that might have... So I, he, it's the one issue where what he says doesn't ring true. And, I, and, and then the fact that he tweeted Roger Waters in the first place, you know, something in support of Roger Waters, and then kind of walked it back it makes me wonder if if he's really not very engaged with the issue of Israel. But it's just when you look at the other things that his father did and that he says, and he talks about his father meeting people on the Pine Ridge Reservation, it seems that, he, that that sympathy is missing for the Palestinians. And I'm well aware that there are bigger issues and that really it's a subset, a small subset really, of the bigger issue of U.S. empire and U.S. running the world. I mean, that's how we should look at the support of Israel. But uh, is there... What what do you make of his uh, the flack that he's taken recently from people on the left about about Israel and do you think that this is an issue that he could be moved on in some ways? Yeah, I honestly don't know. I, mean, I haven't talked to him about it per se. Um, I know that he's always open, as he as he says, to changing his mind and open to criticism. I don't think the fact that Sirhan was was in, was you know of Arab heritage uh, has anything to do with it? I mean, he knows Sirhan, you know, was not innocent of being there in the pantry, but not the guy who killed his father, and and so I don't think that's that's a factor. Um, and you know, I, I don't I don't know beyond that. I really haven't brought it up with him, but uh, he does certainly have uh, compassion for and and care deeply about uh, Native Americans and African Americans. Um, has, has talked about this a number of times. He visited, you know, Indian reservations when he was young with his father, and and has a was given a, a Native American name, and so was his son Bobby the Third when they were on Pine Ridge at one point. So, you know, I know that means a lot to him, and and uh, so that's all I can say. I mean, I think he would be somebody who who indeed stands up for uh, you know people of uh, who are not in. Not, not privileged, not in power, need help. And hopefully that would be true with the Palestinian situation as well. Yeah, I, I hope so too, because I, I think that just as the American public is kind of in for a rude awakening as the U.S. hegemony uh, continues to crumble, which I think is inevitable because the rest of the world is, it's not that China's doing anything so deviously clever, it's just that they are providing a separate set of institutions that are less predatory and exploitative than what the U.S. imposes on people. I mean, China lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in their own country, and they're building projects around the world. And RFK Jr. has said, this is what we should be doing, actually. Um, but in the U.S., the, you know, the U.S. foreign policy has been so vicious. And it, basically, any country that attempts to, to lift people out of poverty, if the U.S. can destroy them, they will. I mean... Look at Venezuela, for example. There's no Cold War yeah. to justify what we're doing to Venezuela. They're not part of a global communist conspiracy. Now it's just obvious that like the U.S. wants to crush people that are trying to use like oil revenues to help poor people. I mean, so this is uh, 
you know, this is a, 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 a real sinister kind of a system that he's going up against here. Um, how do you, he's written about other things in foreign policy that I think are, uh, he's gone into other areas where they're, uh, he's really gone against the grain. I mean, his, he wrote about the Syria pipeline article, uh, and I thought that was really impressive. And he mentions in this, you know, Air, uh, the Middle East should be controlled by, the Arabs should control the Middle East. So this is in a way revisiting a fork in the road that the U.S. saw years ago when they, they undermined Nasser. Uh, I think JFK was actually the only guy willing to uh, at all have a try to have a good relationship with Nasser. But um, do you is he willing to overturn these other orthodoxies? I guess like is you know the U.S. declares it a disaster that that Saudi Arabia and Iran signed a peace treaty because China brokered it and so on. But I mean we should have more of this, don't don't you think? Oh yeah, I do, and I, I think he would you know, take on these other orthodoxies. I mean, he's, he's been very adamant about the, which is, of course, obvious to everybody now, but the Iraq war and overthrowing Saddam Hussein, which, uh, uh, you know, was all based on a lie that they didn't, they didn't have weapons of mass destruction. And, and, and that was, you know, the, the, what, what the Bush administration used to justify it. And, and uh, he would, you know, really come up against this, these kinds of things and point out the historical, you know, fallacies too, or, and, and correct you know, I think you got to go back again without dwelling on this too much. But to me, I was a kid then, or I was in high school. But you know, I don't think that America ever recovered from the fact that we had a coup d'état. Uh, that four, the four great leaders of the '60s were all assassinated by not the same people necessarily, but by the same force that was out to stop positive change and keep the status quo and keep themselves in power and their and we live, now we look at a society today where just, you know, it's all money and greed and we have this merger of corporate and state and media power that's unprecedented. But it began then. And I think, you know, one reason that I've been so devoted to getting the truth out about that over the years is I don't think we can really go on as a country until that truth is, is exposed as much as we still can. And, uh, you know, but the big media, I mean, they don't want to do it. And they won't review books like mine or... Uh, or JFK and the unspeakable, they're, they're just going to ignore it. Um, and, and because they don't want to admit that uh, they should have been looking into this a long time ago and tracing what happened, you know, through Watergate and through the Iran-Contra scandal. And, and you know, uh, on up to today, we have 60 years of history where now, you know, we're, we're back uh, mired in this, no, oh, I don't know, you know, this world where... Uh, Everybody's completely divided, divide and conquer, right? And it's, it's just a, a tragedy. And, and he's somebody that still carries that, you know, that, remem that mem memory, that remembrance, as well as, I think, that, that Kennedy spirit, which, uh, you know, we haven't seen since uh, the 1960s in a, in a big public way. Yeah, and a lot of this gets into something that he does bring up in the book or that you bring up, but, you, you know, through talking, through conversations with him which I think is very important. And people, even people on the left who are supposedly radical sometimes don't get it, which is orthodoxies. And so the way that orthodoxies get created and enshrined is a dynamic that you, you have to really grapple with to understand how we could be so, how we could have so much information at our disposal and so much wealth and so many institutions dedicated to furthering human information and yet be so collectively stupid about so many things. You have to yeah. look at these 
orthodoxies because, for example, in terms of history, I mean, if, if you look at the Kennedy assassination, honestly, and those other assassinations of the 60s, I think you have to conclude that there's a force in this country that can exercise a veto power over democracy when it when it suits them, when, it, when they deem it necessary. And that kind of a system, this is something that is said in Oliver Stone's JFK and those closing arguments, but it's, and it re- seems almost facile, but it, it's, it's true. That kind of a system where there are these, you know, top-down forces that can, that intervene to like say, no, this is it. This is how it's going to be. That's fascism. So we, we yeah. seem to have a disguised fascism, but in the, in academia, you can't, you don't write about these things. There's no, there's literally, I mean, there, there was for a time, a small group of academics writing about state crimes against democracy, and there's a handful of radical criminologists, but by and large, this is not discussed. So in, in a way, his, historians and political scientists, social scientists are writing about a, a regime, a, a regime system, a system of governance that doesn't really exist in the U.S. Like if you, if they can intervene in a top-down way like this and just assassinate people, and no, no liberal, quote unquote, liberal institutions like the free press or our academic, you know, academics at the universities can deal with it. These are orthodoxies that are frightening. How does what do you think you, we could say about Robert Kennedy Jr.'s understanding of orthodoxies and how this is a important way to understand where we've gone wrong? Oh yeah, well again, I, th- I think he's he's been in the in the trenches on this for. For a long time, and and you know, in taking on the polluters, and and later the, the public health orthodoxy, which uh, you know, has been that uh, we've got to follow America's Dr. Fauci and head into the sunset, and you know, everybody should get their vaccines with this whole new technology that wasn't really adequately tested before it was given to people, and you know, he's been once he took that on. I mean, that's the big orthodoxy that that uh, we're living with today. Certainly, you know, the most prominent one in terms of of what's happened with the big pharma pharmaceutical companies and they're extending their power into you know the halls of, of Congress and, and just basically taking over legislators with with all their funding and and being able to advertise on TV which they never used to be able to do you know uh, back in the till the 1980s when the Federal Communications Commission opened the door for for pharma companies to to advertise their their products on TV it didn't happen now that's all we see on, on the nightly news. Um, and, and, you know, only New Zealand, the only other country that allows that to happen. So at the same time, you know, we've seen uh, products like Vioxx, which, which Merck made, and of course the, the opioid crisis, uh, which is killing, you know, has killed thousands of kids uh, with, with uh, addiction and fentanyl. Um, you know, these are the kinds of things that, that, that Bobby has raised and would would take on. And so, you know, it comes from, and he grew up, uh, you know, when he, when he grew up, I mean, his, his uncle, Ted, was very involved. He was, he was the chairman of the Senate, uh, you know, the Human Relations Committee. I mean, uh, I'm not Human Relations, but the, the Health Committee in the Senate. Um, they knew Dr. Fauci, you know, they, they were very well acquainted with, uh, with that, that world. And he came very reluctantly into that issue uh, and didn't want to really leave being an environmental advocate and and take on this new quest, which we could talk about if you want to. I mean, he's talked about it a lot, how that happened to him. Um, yeah, we, we, but, should, um, we should mention that, I think, how, because this is, this is where he is most frequently 
you know, yeah. slandered. And this is the sort of go-to thing is to call him an anti-vaxxer and so on. I think Naomi Klein just wrote a, a piece yeah. and all of these different establishments, especially I noticed that you're the left, the, the quote unquote left people who are, at, who are, who are professionally employed by institutions that can actually employ people, which to me yeah. should be like a red flag. Like this is not a, actually a person on the left because the left does, there are no institutions to support an authentic uh, anti-establishment left in the United States, in my opinion. Um, but they, you know, they call him an anti-vaxxer all the time. And I don't, I can't speak to everything that they have said on, on this issue, but whenever I've heard in your book, it does this well, whenever I've heard him speak as well about some of the conflicts of interests that are baked into the, the, the cake here in terms of the way our regulatory agencies are structured, it's frightening to me, especially because there's no, there's no logical basis to conclude that Pfizer and Merck and all these other pharmaceutical companies are fundamentally different from the corporate giants in every other uh, yeah. sector of the economy, like Monsanto or Boeing or Goldman Sachs. I mean, it's like there's because, but they have so much advertising power, I guess, and then control over Congress. It's just this orthodoxy is enforced that like somehow it is this system, this re regime uh, for vaccination and such is, is incorruptible. And if you question it, you're kind of a monster because then children will die because they don't get vaccinated. I mean, this is kind of horrific when you understand how these things work. And I, as a political scientist who's a dissident, I understand how that whole discipline is corrupted by, by power and the way that there are some subjects you just can't talk about if you want to be tenured and so on. And there's not even an industry behind political science like there is with pharma. There's not even, it's not even like trillions of dollars are at stake with political science and it's corrupted by these forces. So, you know, how, what, what made him take on this uh, behemoth that's that's really at great expense to himself and his own reputation. How did this happen? Oh, yeah, it's cost him big time in terms of friendships, in terms of his own family, in terms of his livelihood. I mean, he used to give speeches, you know, all over the country, 200 and some days a year and made a very good living doing it. And, and uh, while he was raising six kids and, and uh, you know, not all that's been taken away from him, including the used to write these op-eds for the New York Times, which thought he was just an incredible, you know, oh, what a great spokesman. And, and now, since uh, for the more than 10 years now, he hasn't been allowed to do that. He can't even get a letter to the editor published in, in the major papers. And so anyway, that said, and the censorship being obvious, especially in recent years, um, it started in, in 2004 uh, when you know, he was giving these speeches uh, all over the country uh, about mercury in power plants and what it was doing when it when it emanated from these plants and what it was doing to our environment and, and to people and animals and so on and and he began finding that there was this group of, of women and a large group of women uh, who were coming up to him at these speeches and cornering him afterwards and saying you know this is all true and we're glad you're talking about it but i really think you should look at the, what, what's happened with mercury being used in, in childhood vaccines because my kid has a neurodevelopmental disorder or is autistic and, and I, I, we feel that it's traceable to, to thimerosal, which was then being used at that time, it isn't anymore, in, in vaccinations. And he said he, he came kicking and screaming into this. He did not want to look at it. But eventually, uh, one of these women came to Hyannis, actually knew a family member. I tell this story in the book. And and uh, 
had a whole box of documents that, that uh, this group of women had, had managed to rescue from the government, I guess, uh, under Freedom Information Act lawsuits. And, and one of these was, was a chronicle of what had happened at what's what's called Simpsonwood, which is a, a conference center in, in Georgia where uh, it was, uh, this meeting was taped and, and there was a, a transcript of uh, how the, the big pharmaceutical companies and government agencies, uh, FDA, CDC, had come together to figure out what, how are we going to cover up, basically, uh, the fact that, that mercury in these vaccines may have been causing these neurodevelopmental disorders in kids. And there was the Verstraten study. There was a number that he, that he came across that he was, Bobby was shocked, I mean, to, to, to see this. And so he did this big piece uh, for Rolling Stone and, and Salon uh, exposing this. And boy, I'll tell you, the backlash uh, right after that was really swift. Um, you know, suddenly the New York Times was doing a piece saying, well, there's all these other studies saying that thimerosal is, is not detrimental to kids. And, um, and then eventually, but thimerosal was taken out of the vaccines and I think it was 2001, um, just before this. Anyway, it, uh, so then he, he, he kind of left it. I mean, he said, okay, I did what I could. Uh, it didn't become this cause that dominated his life. But uh, then in 2011, uh, six years later, uh, under pressure, Salon, from who I don't know, but Salon came out and, and basically uh, took, the, took his piece down from their website, kind of retracted it in a sense, saying that they discovered there were all these factual errors, which he, there were a few errors, but they weren't major things that would have caused somebody to do that. Uh, and then little by little, he got back into it and began realizing that studying what was going on with the, with the pharmaceutical industry and, and uh, realizing that in the, back in the mid-1980s, too, that, that uh, Congress had exempted them from liability for vaccine injury. Um, so that, that, that of, part to me is crazy because it's very few people are aware of that or the backstory around it, that they were basically saying, like, look, we're, if you don't do this, we're paying out way more in damages than than we yeah. can with the product, which to me is like them admitting, like, there are issues here with safety. Like, if they're saying this product, we have to have this exceptional uh, and very unusual legislation put in place because we cannot make these – we cannot create these without – having to pay more in liabilities than we'll ever make. I mean, this to me, it just seems like the obvious thing for something like this, that is this fraught with, with, with importance, is that it should be nationalized or something because you just can't have industry. Yeah. You can't have yeah. industry and profiteering uh, in this kind of a system where you're basically saying everyone living in the United States is a customer of these companies and, and they are free from any uh, legal, you know, they don't have to worry about any lawsuits or anything. Yeah, I mean, it, basically that decision opened the floodgates for uh, for what he Bobby has called a gold rush. You know, where the where the big companies just uh, dove into. You know, there used to be when I was growing up, uh, probably for you too. I mean, there, we didn't get that many childhood vaccines. I mean, yeah, I got polio when I was a kid. Um, maybe uh, something for measles later. I don't know, but but um, all of a sudden there were all these you know different vaccines for, that kids had to had to take on the vaccine schedule, and I think sixteen different vaccines that over the course of their early years meant 72 shots. I mean, that's a lot of, a lot of shots. And, um, you know, and, there's, and there was never any studies done uh, to see really what the impact of that uh, could be on kids, even though 
you know, the thimerosal was taken out, but there still was aluminum in, in the flu vaccine and others as a, an adjuvant. And, and uh, then you saw a big uptick in, in childhood allergies uh, because of that, perhaps. Uh, but nobody looked at it. You know, nobody was willing to even dive into it and say, "This is this is not the case." Um, Isn't that the key issue that that seems like the, the what the problems might be? I mean, it, there are there's a huge spike in like food allergies and in autism, yeah. and some people try to say, "Well, now they're just better at understanding autism." But I, I absolutely don't believe that. I see more kids. Mm-hmm. I was a teacher uh, at a high school for a while, and there are just a more higher percentage of kids. It seemed to be on the autism spectrum than I remember growing up. I mean, maybe I wasn't that clued in watching, you know, paying that close attention. But that seems like a like a a real thing that you can't just wash away. The numbers are there for the food allergies, but this issue is not so much that like the weakened, you know, adenoviruses or other things that they put in it that are actually supposed to be creating the immunity to viruses, but the adjutants. Is that the word? Uh, yeah, yeah that, that these uh, that they don't the, if if it's accurate in as 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 is in your book that they don't do safety testing except for they don't actually use placebos when they safety test them they use them they use uh, the vaccine versus some sort of shot that has all of the adjutant or, or some sort of equivalent to the adjutants then that that's that that's kind of frightening because it's it seems like that it, the those are what are actually potentially caught because they're put in the vaccine to like provoke an immune response like an allergic response right. basically and that yep. this seems to be potentially where the safety issue is but yet they don't act that we don't do any testing over it so yeah i mean that that's what bobby has said over and over again he said i am i'm not anti-vaccine my kids have been vaccinated he certainly used to get vaccinated uh, on a regular basis. He had the flu vaccine for for many many years and others. So, you know, he said he said, hey, he said I, I I've been fighting for uh, for many many years to to clean up the, the the rivers and allow fishermen to catch fish we can eat. Nobody calls me anti-fish. I've been fighting for 40 years to get pesticides out of our food. Nobody calls me anti-food. All I'm saying is that we need safe vaccines. And in order to make sure that that's the case, we need to be tested against a, a placebo, which has never happened. I mean, he he tells the story, uh, you know, and I recounted in the book of a meeting he had with Anthony Fauci, you know, a few years ago, uh, before the pandemic, right? And uh, asking Dr. Fauci to show him a study where there was a placebo used in, in testing these vaccines. And, and Fauci couldn't do it because they didn't. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that makes no sense to me. But Again, it's profitability, right? And and uh, so they, they want to, you know, the big pharma is one of the, it's the biggest lobbying group in the country. Uh, they're making billions of dollars. Um, vaccines are mandated for kids in school. So they're, you know, it's a guaranteed uh, huge income for them. Um, and something I think needs to be done about that in terms of addressing, let's really make sure when our kids are being vaccinated, like with a DPT vaccine, which has had detrimental effects on many, many kids, that they're safe. And the same with, you know, I mean, COVID, there's no liability for for Pfizer or, or Moderna uh, in terms of the COVID vaccine. And, you know, yes, it saved apparently a lot of people's lives, uh, but also there were other things that were possible to do uh, that have been, you know, just dismissed by the media and 
and and and the, the, the people who run this country is is ineffective. But uh, and we don't know yet. I mean, what the long term effects could be because as, as safe as mRNA vaccines may be, uh, may be shown to be, and for other diseases, uh, they were never tested in the way that customarily vaccines have to be tested, which takes a number of years. And of course, we were in this emergency situation, and and uh, the government rushed things ahead. But um, those are the kinds of things that I think he would he would change. He's not going to outlaw some, every vaccine. He, he He's going to say that mandates uh, need to be looked at very strongly because, you know, look, look what happened with these mandates in terms of uh, lockdowns and getting health workers fired and all of that. So I say all this because I'm not an anti-vaxxer either, you know. I mean, I, I think that vaccines have played an important role in, in our history and, and in saving lives, and we need to continue to to have them as far as uh, their safety can be proved. Yeah, that seems to me to be what his policy is that he's suggesting is that they he, he needs to restructure the regulatory agencies so that anybody yeah. looking at them would say, these are there are no conflicts of interest here. Like this is, they're not industry people regulating the industry and then have, you know, basically create a system of testing against placebos uh, for vaccine safety and effects. Like that to me seems quite reasonable. He's not, but that's, it's not discussed that clearly. They just instead call him an anti-vaxxer. They don't even really explain what the issue is. And I think that's by design and that they're just, you're just supposed to be, the, the media wants you to recoil and, and think that this is a bad person with bad, dangerous ideas that you shouldn't listen to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the fact is, I mean, he spent many, many, many years, 40 years as an environmental advocate, you know, looking at what's what he calls and what is is regulatory capture. In other words, over time, uh, the agencies that are supposed to be protecting us, like the EPA, uh, would allow pesticide manufacturers, for example, or big oil companies to just uh, uh, do whatever they wanted. And there was a revolving door, which has been written about many times, you know, in the progressive publications like The Nation and others, you know, that it does a back and forth, uh, you know, move between industry and government. And that's a big campaign theme now for Bobby is, you know, we've had this merger of state and corporate power. Well, back in World War II, Mussolini called that the essence of fascism. You know, when that when those two forces come together, and of course, with us, you know, we've also seen much of the media in lockstep with with these ideas. So, yeah, I mean, he would he's taken all that on. I mean, it's scary, but the guy has a lot of a lot of guts. I gotta say, you know, he's his uh, his father talked about moral courage, and I think that uh, that's been passed along to Bobby and means a great deal to him, you know, to this day at the age of 69. I think really related to this is that and that other candidates for president and other politicians just there isn't much it's there's frighteningly little discussion of it is all of the censorship and manipulation uh, of, of social media and, and so on and, and different you know different aspects of the vac of what they wanted to do with COVID in terms of putting surveillance and compliance and mandate regimes in and so on uh, you know, and just basic issues of free speech as well. 
I mean, or the the way that they can track you all the time and and gather all this data on you. Like he's really the only candidate I've heard speaking about, or, and and the the sort of threat presented by like digital currencies and how they could really create a more totalitarian <laughs> economic system where there's no real uh, area where you can participate in economic activity outside of that, which is controlled in a top-down centralized fashion by you know electronic uh, money systems and so on. I mean, he's the he's he's and this is why I think he has some appeal to libertarians, which some people yeah. on the left will say, well, aha, he's a he's a right winger when but he's way to the left on Biden overall. Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty ridiculous. But but what what do you how would you compare his advocacy of civil liberties, basically, with, you know, traditional liberal ideas of like that are in the Bill of Rights, even? I mean, they're, they're the, the, the quote, quote unquote liberals today don't even really have much use for the Bill of Rights. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's really weird. It's scary that the, the, the Democratic Party and I'm a Demo I'm a lifelong you know, liberal Democrat, but, you know, that they're, they've become the party that's that's uh, of censorship. And of course, he's experienced this firsthand. I mean, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, he can't. Not only can he can he not be, be published in in mainstream media anymore, which just attacks him, pretty much. But you know, he he's been you know kicked off of uh, Instagram, uh, which is owned by Facebook. Um, they finally let him know, back on, I think. They finally let him back on recently because they, you know he's a presidential candidate now. But you know, there was a whole period during during the, the pandemic that. He wasn't. He had a huge number of followers on, you know, almost a million followers on Instagram, and and uh, and and to get the word out to, and, and suddenly he wasn't allowed to do that, and he ended up, you know, taking on uh, Facebook in in a lawsuit, and and also something called the the Trusted News Initiative, which was a conglomerate. Yes, of, Orwellian. Uh, yeah, you know, the, exactly. Uh, of BBC, you know, uh, getting together with other media and making sure they had a, a common, you know, narrative that they weren't going to look into things. I mean, there's no investigative journalism really anymore. I mean, there's some, but I mean, Matt Taibbi is out there doing it, and now they're just crucifying him. But um, there's some know, of the it, some of these outlets that are there are like I think CIA fronts, like that Committee of Investigative Journalists or something, and they have these ties to like Ford Foundation or, or other such entities. It might not be Ford, but like Bill Gates gives them a lot of money and. I mean, yeah. this is this is where we get these fake. Our old liberal institutions were inadequate anyway, but these new fake ones are are even worse. Yeah, this this group called the Center for Countering Digital Hate, you know, which came up with the disinformation dozen and made Bobby, I think, number two after Dr. Mercola or something. But but uh, you know, there it was interesting to me to find out that uh, one of the leading people who got that organization going wrote a book about her years as a CIA agent not too many years before. So, you know, you have that kind of raises your eyebrows. And then and Bill Gates has been systematically, you know, taking over media outlets for more than 10 years. I mean, I mean, just, he just, just gives them, he just gives them millions of dollars. Yeah. You know, their foundation gives them all this money. And, and so they're not going to come out and, and, and attack Bill Gates. I mean, and, he should at least buy ads so he could pretend it's not just a straight up bribe. Right. Exactly. I mean, look at the, the and I'm not just saying this or Bobby. I mean, it's the Columbia Journalism Review, uh, the Nation did these huge exposés on on Gates, uh, you know, being being doing this and basically buying up the media. So when you have that going on and and less and less independent media, it's uh, it's pretty scary because where where are the alternative voices? And that's why 
you know, so many, so many people I know, I mean, they just kind of read the headlines. And uh, I was shocked, actually, working on the book, you know, that there were a number of people who, who wouldn't talk to me, even though they had, there was one guy, I'm not going to name him, but he was a, a real a close colleague of Bobby's uh, with NRDC and, and, and a lot of the environmental fights. And he said, oh, I, I can't talk to you about him anymore. I, I, but they've achieved great victories, you know, all over the world. And, and he wouldn't even talk about that uh, because Bobby was just anathema to, to become that. And, 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 you know, I mean, he was let go by Riverkeeper. He was let go by NRDC um, when he started taking on this public health cause. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, he's got good reason to uh, be pissed off about censorship. And and uh, and and he, he calls himself a, a constitutional absolutist, you know that he's a believer in the First Amendment and the other amendments too, and and he's going to see that those uh, that 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 they're given their due in in terms of, of what our country's supposed to be. Yeah, and as far as the constitutional absolutism goes, and, and some and his commitment to some of these these policies, I mean, it, one thing that people will try to say. You know, online. I mean, people say lots of things online, but they will look at his anti-imperialist stance and and think that he's insincere about it. But he's he said he wants to essentially get rid of the operations arm of the CIA, and he wants yeah. the U to stop having coups and assassinations and color revolutions and all these things. I don't know that he's come out and put a fine point on it to say the U.S. should follow international law, or, or if he has said that, I I've missed it. But do you do you think he is really serious about just completely if he were to be president just ending these policies and basically saying because all of these policies are against the constitution if we ratify the bill of rights or I'm sorry if we ratify the UN charter which we did it is the supreme law of the land but we violate it all the time so it's an outlaw state and it only takes like a couple minutes to explain it and it's never discussed i mean is how do you think that he is seriously committed to ending the U.S. empire and making the U.S. beloved around the world, as he says? Yeah, I, I really, really honestly do. I think that's his biggest commitment, and, and he will set out to achieve that, whatever whatever it takes, because, you know, he sees the, the billions that we're pouring into uh, this the, the war in, in Ukraine, for example, which he points out in 2014, basically, we installed the, the government of, of, of Ukraine. Which, which is an um, illegal act of aggression as well. So when we talk about Ukrainian sovereignty, I mean, you just have yeah. to laugh. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, he's, he's been pointing out that, I mean, he, he's talking a lot about the middle class and how, you know, we, we no longer have a, a real middle class in this country. And, you know, the government's cutting food stamps for, you know, I don't know what the amount is exactly off the top of my head, but same time we're, we're pouring i mean where are where are our priorities i think he would reorient as much as he was allowed to do uh you know as president the, the priorities of the country and issue executive orders and and that's why you know i mean he he scares a lot of people because he is uh sincerely up against uh the system that he feels has been corrupted and i think he's right and i think a lot of people see that and they hear somebody, you know, out there at least telling the truth as as he sees it, and that's why he's risen to the, you know, his favorability rating last week in the polls was higher than both uh, Biden and Trump. Um, so that's pretty interesting since he's only been at this for a couple of months. 
Okay, and my uh, my last question for you here, because I said we'd keep this at about an hour, and that's where we're at. Uh, and this is, to me, I think, a very urgent and pressing issue at the time, which is if the Democratic Party stays true to form and uh, does not allow an above-board primary process to unfold and, you know, basically screws RFK Jr. Uh, in different ways, would he consider an independent run? And do you think that there's any room for some kind of West, Cornell West, RFK alliance? Because they, you know, they, they disagree on some issues. On some issues, for me, rhetorically, West goes into areas that RFK doesn't, which I appreciate. But on the issue of empire and state criminality and corporate corruption, RFK is actually much better and more specific and concrete in his critiques, yeah. which I do think I appreciate. But, you know, it reminds me of 1968 when you had the sort of a social movement leader like Martin Luther King outside of the political establishment. And, and I don't even want to say that RFK Jr. has a he has a toenail in the establishment, I think, because of his name and the fact that he's even running in the primary. But in a way, he's he, he can be seen as representing something like RFK in 1968. Yeah. Uh, but of course, they, in 1968, they assassinate both leaders. I feel that they're not in the position where they can assassinate anybody anymore uh, for optical reasons, uh, but I could be wrong about that. And also the fact that the empire is teetering. I mean, maybe this, maybe smarter people will say, you know, we do need these huge reforms or we are screwed. Uh, do you think that he, there's a chance for him outside of the party based on your conversations with him or basically based on your own understanding of what his own politics are and the urgency of the moment? I mean, could we see a third party run I mean, I would like to think that that would be so or possible, you know, for him to have a chance if he did that. Um, you know, he's a lifelong Democrat. Uh, he feels like uh, what he wants to do is restore uh, the values of the Democratic Party that existed, you know, when his father and his uncle were alive. And, uh, I, you know, I, I certainly have not heard him say that he would run as an independent if they won't hear, hear you know, let him into the debates and so on. But he might be forced to do that. I mean, I don't know. It would depend on, uh, but again, it's we've seen it in the past that that's really hard to overcome this two-party uh, uh, monopoly that's, that exists. I mean, Ross Perot tried it a number of years ago. Did pretty well, actually. And Bobby would probably do that well, but I don't know if he could if he could win as an independent. But I could be I could be wrong. I, I mean, I would I would like to I would like to see him consider that. If he's if he's totally you know blackballed by the party and and not allowed to uh, participate in a democratic manner, yeah, I mean something like a third party run or something like some sort of deal with Cornell where he could endorse Cornell West and potentially be the attorney general like his father was. I mean, it just seems that something needs to happen because the the U.S. empire is is crumbling and it is going to crumble. And if we could get in, if some leader could get in front of this and reorient the country, I think that it could make this collapse less uh, disastrous for on a human level in the United States. And I mean, honestly, with another four years of an establishment person who is charged with keeping this empire going, it raises the risks of nuclear war. I mean, it's just I don't think we can afford another four years of, t of gambling that these lunatics aren't going to get us all killed because what they want is insane. They want to rule the world forever, and they want to destroy every force 
capable of interfering with their ability to rule the world. I mean, it's brought us to the edge of nuclear doomsday in 1962. This Ukraine situation could lead to that. I, this is why I, I, I feel that some people on the left are, don't understand the importance or the, how serious the situation is because they're not as anti-imperialist and they don't get the criminal nature of this regime because they don't understand things like the Kennedy assassination. So, I mean, this, yeah. this seems like the, a, an extremely important election, which they say every time. But, I mean, U.S. imperialism, which is really the culmination of centuries of Western imperialism, it's, it's a sinking ship. And uh, the reality of this, I don't think, is hitting people. No, I don't think so either. I mean, because it, yeah, it's not hitting a lot of people, but I think it's hitting enough that we're seeing, you know, people wanting to, to listen to Bobby. And I think, you know, he's been, he had many, many opportunities through the years. And I've witnessed this personally to, to run for office, to run for <clears throat> attorney general of New York or governor of New York or senator. And he never did it. Uh, but I think he was raising his, his kids and, and didn't want to, you know, Give, you know, change that situation at the time. But now his kids are grown up. And the times, I think, call for him to, to do this. I, I'll tell you a quick story. I was, I was with him in 2000, and, was it the end of 06? Yeah, Obama hadn't yet declared. It was kind of looking like Hillary versus Jeb Bush. And, and uh, I, I had just started writing a book with uh, Jesse Ventura, uh, who was the independent governor of, uh, elected as an independent from Minnesota, right? And uh, I'd run into him by accident in Mexico, and we started working on his memoir together. We ended up writing five books together, actually. And uh, so I introduced Bobby to uh, Ventura in Mexico. <clears throat> and uh, they went diving together, and they got along great. And at the end of that that uh, day, we were having dinner where Bobby was staying uh, in Cabo. And he, he suddenly Ventura looked at him and said, so do you want to run the country? And Bobby says, he, he didn't know what to say, right? He, he stands up. He says, well, yeah, I want to run the country. Ventura says, then quit the Democratic Party and run with me. And I'm thinking, wow, that would be amazing. <laughs> and these guys could probably have a chance. Now, it didn't happen. Uh, Bobby said, well, I can't do that. I'm, I'm a Democrat. And Ventura says, well, you know, yeah, okay, but your uncle was a great Democrat and your father, and but it's passe. We're past the two-party system now. Let's let's start something new. And uh uh, didn't it didn't happen? But hey, you never know. Maybe uh, it'll be an idea whose time has come all these years later. I wouldn't mind it. No, me neither. I mean, they, uh, they, they people always poo-poo Ventura, but I think he's more serious than people realize, and he has good instincts on a number of things. And he sure does. Um, I, I, you know, I, he, I wish the Greens would have had him last time instead of that clown that they put up there. But that's a whole other that's a whole other yeah. issue. Uh, Dick Russell, the new book is The Real RFK Jr., and it's coming out. What's the release date? Uh, the 20th, so it's out. I mean, it's ready for people to, you know, it was, it's been on pre-order from Amazon, and, and now it's ready to be shipped. So, uh, yeah, I'm hoping that it, it gives people a real insight into what Bobby's achieved in, in his life and what he's been through in order to get there um, and why he would be somebody that, uh, you know, could be a true leader of this country uh, in ways that, that we haven't seen in a while and, and that we desperately need. Well, I think you've done a great job uh, with the book. I've been reading it here for the last week, and it, it uh, gave me a lot of information I didn't have before. And uh, I wish you luck here, and I thank you very much for joining us. Sometime when this whole business calms down and you have a, a, a less on your plate, I'd like to get you back to talk about our man, Richard Case Nagel, 
uh, because that's I didn't even bring it up because it would have derailed the whole conversation today. So because uh, I, I know myself. Uh, so that's in the future. But I want to thank you very much for uh, for joining us here today. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for having me on. I'd like to thank Dana Chavaria for producing this episode and Mock Orange for providing the music. Please check the show notes for a link to Dick Russell's website and to his new book, The Real RFK Jr. For those of you who have had enough of the RFK Jr. discussions, all the upcoming scheduled episodes are on other subjects like the Peter Dale Scott Oral History Series and an episode on HBO's White House Plumbers. Uh, here and now, I want to mention a few things from Dick Russell's book, and or related to RFK Jr. The first is RFK's history of truth-telling, uh, which I think is important to look at. And there's a, a few examples of this in the book, but uh, that we didn't really even get to talk to. One of them I want to mention just briefly here is his Politico article of a few years ago when he was writing about the Syrian war. And, you know, Politico is the most generic CIA-friendly outlet uh, and the, if this got published in their european version but it was uh probably the best mainstream article by far that i saw on syria it was uh pretty remarkable that uh, it got put out in politico and the robert kennedy jr did it in the first place i'm just going to point out one passage from it uh, he wrote once we strip this conflict of its humanitarian patina and recognize the syrian conflict as an oil war our foreign policy strategy becomes clear we need to dramatically reduce our military profile in the Middle East and let the Arabs run Arabia. We need to begin this process not by invading Syria, but by ending the ruinous addiction to oil that has warped U.S. foreign policy for half a century. So I would just point this out. Uh, he was, you know, there weren't too many Democrats that were straying from the Obama line and the corporate media line that, that the war in Syria was some kind of like, you know, Arab Spring thing for freedom and democracy with moderate rebels you know, marching for to unseat a dictator. That was the rhetoric. But then, of course, hey, those moderate rebels, uh, they are uh, wearing black hoods and have a black flag and they chop off people's heads. And they don't seem like any moderate liberals that I've ever met. Uh, they seem more like Al-Qaeda because that's what they were, uh, basically. And um, so, but nobody was telling the truth about this. And then their, their little PR flax, the white helmets, Al-Qaeda's PR army, uh, or the CIA's PR army, or, or, or how, what is the connection there? Hmm, so strange. But anyway, they were all uh, cheerleading this, this whole bloody debacle. It killed hundreds of thousands of people. RFK Jr. said this is ridiculous, and it's, a, it's of a piece with the rest of our uh, you know, horrible Middle East politics. And when he says that the, the Arabs should run Ara Arabia, this, is, this really is hearkening back to... To, to what they want us to forget about JFK and that whole era, which is that JFK did have some support, gave some support to Na Nasser and Pan-Arabism. I mean, uh, this was really remarkable because it was, that's so unimaginable to, you know, the oil parts, the oil aspects that control U.S. foreign policy and the pro-Israel side of it. So this is really a, a remarkable statement from RFK and something to think about uh, when you want to say whether or not he really does try to continue the foreign policy of his uh, father and uncle. Now, on there's one issue in particular that is super radioactive uh, about RFK, and uh, I am in, by no means an expert on it, 
And I don't think it's really uh, something that somebody should base their vote for president on one way or the other. That is, of course, his uh, critique of the United of the U.S. vaccine regime. So uh, I, I'm not even going to attempt to like weigh in on the veracity of some of his critiques because it's really out of my my wheelhouse. Uh, I'm not educated in pharmacology or uh, you know medicine, so or biology deeply. So um, I, I can only be an educated uh, layperson who has been trained in you know research methods and other things related to experimental design and uh, other ways of conducting research using quantitative methods and so on. So I'm not totally a person who's unaware of the scientific method and all that, but I'm not, when you get into the minutia of it, I don't know that much. But I just want to point out a couple of things that he says, which are to me interesting and in passages from the book. Uh, there's a, a passage where he's recounting his experience dealing with Dr. Fauci when he was uh, for a brief moment on a, on a in part of a Trump vaccine safety commission, which is a very interesting thing. Uh, he, he didn't have much power there. It was very short lived, but that was an interesting moment. And he did get to give Dr. Fauci a presentation, uh, which Dr. Fauci was uh, summoned to the White House and forced to listen to. Uh, so in this in his book, in this book, uh, Dick Russell writes about what, what RFK uh, said about this. Uh, he writes, afterward, I said, Dr. Fauci, for many years, you've said that I'm not telling the truth when I say this. So I'm asking you now, uh, I'm asking now for you to show us one study for any of these vaccines that have been tested against a placebo. He made a display of looking through his file box there and he said, I'll send them to you. And that's the last I heard. So the critique, as I understand it, uh, and some of you may know better than me, is that the vaccines that the U.S. creates and mandates for everyone, uh, they do go through some sort of safety testing procedure, but the safety testing procedure does not involve an actual placebo for some reason. Uh, instead, you have one group that's injected with the vaccine and then one group that is uh, injected with some sort of uh, cocktail of the same adjutants that would be in the vaccine. But what our, RFK's argument, as I understand it, and somebody can correct me in the comments if I'm wrong, is that the adjutants themselves are what make the vaccines dangerous because they produce, by design, they are toxic in order to produce a, a reaction, an immune response in the body uh, that, because there are also these dead viruses that go along with these adjutants, then the immune system attacks, you know, there's an immune response to the toxins, but then it creates antibodies for the virus because the immune system is so amped up by the introduction of these adjutants, which are toxic, but that these toxic adjutants might be actually the cause of some of these problems that RFK suspects are related to vaccinations and uh, to, vac to vaccines. So to me, that is very interesting and I don't know what to make of it. I think if he were to become president, and were to actually do placebo testing, normal testing like you would for another any other medication, then we could get some clarity on this. That seems to be what he is proposing uh, is a, a change in the way that these things are safety tested and a change to the regulatory system such that there aren't so many conflicts of interest, that they're not just intertwined with uh, for-profit industry uh, entities, corporations, you know, big pharma, which to me, I think uh, is some, is 
is it's interesting that that is it's never laid out it's his critique is never explained even to like explain and then explain why it's wrong it's just never explained you don't hear him actually explain what he's talking about it's just given as like oh he's anti-vaxxer somebody will tell you that on the news without telling you that the majority of their salary comes from you know big pharma ad buys which i'll get to here in a second now so $300 $300 million spent by pharma on TV ads in 1997 doubled the next year because the U.S. allows um, farms, farm, big farmer to advertise on TV. Only the U.S. and New Zealand allow that. It's troubling when you think about it. it. Why that was deemed to be something that was in the public interest, I will never know. I think that it's uh, a, another case where private interests were able to corrupt the political process and then... <laughs> Uh, have their idea of what's in the public interest uh, become uh, the norm. <laughs> That's the only way I can explain it, because they, sh they just shouldn't be able to advertise on TV like this, in my opinion. Uh, by 2000, it was $1.57 billion. By 2016, it was $6.6 billion. In 2020, the industry accounted for 70% of the total TV ad spending. So every guy that you see on this... Uh, on on TV ads, if, if this is correct, you know, all the cable news guys, they are mostly paid by Big Pharma. Like, Big Pharma pays a million, the majority of their salary. Oh, this is money that is laundered through ad buys, but it's, there's no way that this does not impact the coverage. And so this might help to explain why nobody can, nobody on the cable news can even say RFK without, uh, you know, putting an ad hominem insult into the, you know, the segue. It's it's uncanny every time. It's like dangerous conspiracy theorist RFK Jr. did X, Y, and Z or something like that. It's always like that. Or, I mean, it's it's really remarkable to know that every every time that you hear that on corporate media, the person telling you that is a, a is a PR agent in in effect because most of their uh, salary comes from big pharma. That's really alarming. I mean, laundered through ad buys, of course, and then the media company pays the the person. But I mean, this isn't that complicated. Um, he tells an interesting story in the book Dick Russell and through uh, RFK Jr. And this is to me fascinating. Uh, he's talking about Roger Ailes because uh, RFK Jr. knew Roger Ailes for uh, a long time. And he wrote this. A couple years before Roger died, when he was still at the height of, of his powers, I'd helped make a documentary film, um, this is, which dealt with, you know, some of these vaccine controversies. I didn't expect to play it on Fox, but I asked if I could come and talk about it. Uh, and Roger said, I can't let you do that. In fact, he said, if any of my hosts allowed you on their show, I would get a call from Rupert Murdoch. Uh, within 10 minutes, I would have to fire them. He went on to tell me that during certain parts of non-election years, 70% of the advertising revenue on their evening news comes from pharma, typically about 17 out of 22 ads. So this is interesting in light of uh, Tucker Carlson's firing because he, we actually, I mean, he's been working. I think this book was written before Tucker Carlson was fired. Uh, I, it had to have been knowing how the publishing works and I have the, Dick Russell and I share the same publisher. That's how I was able to get in touch with him, um, which I'm happy about. But that's, it, you know, this is pretty remarkable that Tucker, they did fire the most, even if you're the most popular cable host, 
you could get fired for something like this. I mean, Tucker did get fired for something, and here we have a guy saying Roger Ailes himself, like the you know one of the founders of Fox News. I mean, he's one of the main people there. Um, the guy running it for a long time. I think it was Murdoch owned it, but then Roger Ailes ran it, right? But here he's saying, I couldn't have you on there. The guy that basically runs Fox, I couldn't have you on there because Rupert Murdoch would fire me instantly. And then we just see Tucker Carlson fired after he said things very critical of Big Pharma because uh, I guess he thought he'd get away with it because of uh, his popularity, but they'll fire their most popular sh their hosts uh, for it because, I mean, if you pay the piper, you call the tune, I guess, and Tucker thought he was big enough to do his own thing maybe or maybe he was fired for something totally different who knows uh if they fired him for the pharma stuff they'll never admit it and so we're just gonna be left scratching our heads a columbia journalism this is also uh, from the book a columbia journalism review expose revealed uh, in 2020 that gates steered over 250 million to the bbc npr nbc al jazeera ProPublica, national journal the guardian New York Times, Univision, Medium, The Financial Times, The Atlantic, The Texas Tribune, Gannett, Washington Monthly, Le Mans, Center for Investigative Reporting, Pulitzer Center, National Press Foundation, International Center for Journalists, and a host of other places. <laughs> to conceal his influence, Gates also funneled unknown sums via subgrants to other press outlets. In addition to the $250 million previously mentioned, since 2012, Gates Foundation has granted some $25 million to media outlets specifically requiring journalist recipients to submit success stories about the international vaccine program that he funds. The foundation holds an annual seminar on strategic media partnerships for compliant journalists and also investigates uh, and also invests in journalism training programs. <laughs> Experts coached in Gates-funded programs write columns that appear in media outlets from the New York Times to the Huffington Post. And millions more have gone, ironically, to the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. So this is pretty amazing that this Bill Gates character, who's a, you know an oligarch, monopolist um, person who thinks that everything... I mean, for, remember for a long time, his big push was to privatize education, that he would just turn this into a profit center. He wanted to make education basically like, like uh, the PC, like personal computers, like every personal computer, if you want to have a personal computer that uses word processors and so on. You gotta, you gotta give Bill Gates his pound of flesh and buy his operating system. That's a nice deal. It's a, you know, that's a monopoly. It means he can charge whatever he, uh, he wants as long as he enjoys that monopoly. Uh, so when uh, he, after you've taken over the PC industry, you can uh, look for other ways to like try to look for money. What is there? Well, education was just this like thing that they did for the, you know, supposedly in the public interest to educate people so they can go on and have uh, more productive lives and be more knowledgeable and participate in democracy and so on. Well, the, but Bill Gates looks at that and says, "Hey, that's that's no good. I gotta, I need to get my beak wet. <laughs> Why can't I uh, monetize that?" So they do that. He does that waiting for Superman bullshit, and you know pushes other. Um, plans and schemes to privatize education. The whole idea is to do it like on the line of the military industrial complex where, uh, you know, private, it's the government spending, but it goes to private companies like Boeing. So the government doesn't build a factory to make planes. It like pays Boeing a ton of money to do that, right? Well, here it would be like, you know, you would have a Bill Gates, um, Microsoft or McDonald's corporation, <laughs> Ronald McDonald school with a you know or all the teachers dressed up like ronald mcdonald or something all right it would be a 
they wouldn't do that, of course, but I'm saying it'd be private corporation running a school or a school board, and then they would take taxpayer money to, to do so. Okay. It's absurdly transparent when you look at what they're going for. Uh, but that was one of the things he did. And then, you know, that sort of fizzles. He loses interest and then he becomes a vaccination man. You know, always talk about how he's going to help people in the third world. Never wanting to help people in the third world have like access to potable water or debt relief or, uh, you know, land reform or nationalization of valuable resources. None of these things that could actually provide a economic and material security for people because that's not his business. Uh, it's it's profit making. And if he can, so he's, then he pays all this money to the media to put a halo on all of this, these activities. And, uh, you know, we see the results. He's becomes this, people actually like think he's this great humanitarian as he just gets richer and richer. It's uh, sickening really to me. Okay. But anyway, so this is, he, he makes a compelling case at the very least for big pharma and the regulatory systems around it being every bit as corrupt as you would expect them to be as a major industry in the United States. There's no major uh, in, area of corporate, you know, capitalism that any industry or sector of the economy that isn't, you know, as bad as the people who make all the money can make it in terms of, you know, profiteering and taking over the regulations and the regulatory process. So, uh, you know, I think that whether he's, whether this, whether this, whether more detailed studies and more honest studies and more sensibly structured studies would reveal uh, the dangers that RFK Jr. seems to suspect could be related to uh, this this field, um, it, I'd say it would be worth knowing about about these things, and it would be worth reforming the regulatory system. But either way, for me personally, I'm more worried about the U.S. empire, uh, and that's the more pressing thing. So, but to me. His vaccine views and the uh, and big the big pharma critique does not disqualify him in any way, shape, or form. Um, but that's you know that's my opinion. And I would also say that as a political scientist who has seen how an entire discipline can be corrupted, when people say like trust the science, trust the science, as though authorities are like somehow immune from these sort of systems, this is just to me kind of dangerous and a little scary because orthodoxy. And, and, you know, Kuhnian paradigms in science show you just how corruptible uh, and malleable uh, human epistemologies and uh, just human inquiry can be. I mean, human understanding can be distorted and, and misdirected and by any number of forces, especially material forces. You can just create it. I mean, the Catholic Church was able to have all these learned scholars you know, who all accepted that the earth was flat for a very long time <laughs> uh, because that's an orthodoxy. And if you don't go along with it, if you dissent, you are ana you're anathema. And, uh, and in this case, you know, you don't get excommunicated. You just won't get any funding uh, if you are in these industries where corruption prevails. So it's, it is serious. Okay. On civil rights and the left, to me, this is an interesting passage. Uh, Dick Russell writes about RFK, RFK saying, you know, he, talking about the messiness of the the, the left uh, and the liberal left side of U.S. politics. A lot of people will say, well, why don't all these groups consolidate and make one movement? But that's not necessary, and it actually isn't desirable. The competition and the ferment and the existence of other groups makes the pie bigger, and it becomes a more dynamic movement. 
Diversity is important because each of these groups attracts different constituencies. You could not have had a successful civil rights movement if it was just Martin Luther King. You need Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party and CORE and SNCC uh, that were competitive and oftentimes highly critical of each other, but all marching in the same direction. Okay, so that to me evinces a important understanding of, of what the role of a reformer uh, like his, his father and uncle and like he aspires to be, what they can do and what they should do. So he's not saying, he, I mean, he's basically endorsing and giving a thumbs up to people like Malcolm X and people like the Black Panthers, uh, which is to me, I think, uh, really remarkable because, you know, these are p entities that were are hated by the, the the right and even hated by many, you know, mainstream liberals when it gets down to like what their actual beliefs were. So uh, this is, uh, I think, notable. It's like he's, you know, these guys, people like Martin Luther King that were more radical were pushing uh, and, and providing power for some reformer to come along and take that, take that lead and use that momentum to uh, enact some social change. What I would say about the people who are very critical of, of this tradition in the U.S., which, I mean, the way that it got defeated and crushed, I can see why you say, well, that doesn't work in a communist, or I'm sorry, in a capitalist society. But uh, that's, in, in large part, that's because of the, the veto power of the, you know, the, the parafascist state, in my opinion, that it, it actually could have worked and and no none other than Malcolm X thought that Malcolm X after he went to Mecca and uh, he he dropped some of the crazier uh, Nation of Islam stuff about you know white people being the devil and so on he has this epiphany and he looks at America which still has the residuals I think of what he's really looking at is the residual of Kennedy and that internationalism. And uh, the, the desire for peace that was palpable and, and LBJ in 1964 runs a peace campaign, you know, where he says, like, uh, Barry Goldwater is going to nuke the world and you've got the girl with the daisies and everything. So, I mean, of course, LBJ was it's awful because LBJ was the exact opposite, but he knew he played to what was prevailing in the in the public. And Malcolm X saw some of the same things. And he says, America is a place where you could have a peaceful revolution, you know, and. and to me, that's uh, remarkable because, uh, you know, JFK was the most popular president in the history of, uh, you know, the poll taking on, uh, on approval polls. He had the highest average rating and he gave speeches in the months before he died saying, we got to end Jim Crow. We got to end uh, the Cold War or, you know, reexamine our attitudes. But when you look at the back channel talks, he was he was talking about ending the Cold War with his own with his adversaries. So. To my mind, this uh, speaks to the, uh, the the power of good leadership if we have it. But that's exactly why you have to get rid of these kinds of leaders. So Martin Luther King, after the Vietnam War starts, he eventually comes out against it in 1967, and uh, he starts speaking about you know uh, taking a much more critical line uh, towards the U.S. system, the whole system, because he he realizes that uh, you know we've passed the Civil Rights Act, we've passed the Voting Rights Act. But then he's going in the north and he sees how bad things are. And, and he says things like, you know, we didn't want to integrate into a burning house. Uh, and, and then and then he calls for deeper change. And he's saying that, like, look, this war in Vietnam is like a demonic suction tube. All these resources are being thrown into it when they could be spent on programs of social uplift. They start speaking about the evil triplets of racism, economic exploitation, you know, poverty, racism, poverty and militarism. 
evil triplets. And Robert Kennedy, uh, you know, in 60, late, I think it's late in 67, he suggests, like, why don't you go to Washington? You know, why don't you go to Washington and march on Washington and demand, the, demand money? So that was for the, for, to help poor people to end, end the war. Um, and this is, uh, this is what Martin Luther King's doing in the last months of his life. His family believes that that was what actually got him killed, that they were so worried about this, you know, this formation of a poor people's march led by Martin Luther King camping out in Washington, just like the bonus army. Uh, and then RFK Jr. taking the, using that momentum to bring in a, a new administration that would wind down the Vietnam War and shift American priorities towards social spending and uh, fighting racial inequality and other dealing with other serious problems. So the establishment was terrified of this, which I think validates what RFK Jr. is saying about how you need uh, some activists out there pushing for progress and then some other people who are more connected to the establishment to uh, be able to actually, you know, win elections and create legislation and change, change laws potentially. Okay. Now if they're naive, which I guess they were because they didn't succeed, but the reason they don't succeed, I mean, is, is quite straightforward. They were assassinated. To me, that's kind of the ultimate validation of the power of what they were saying that the, the state, the establishment, the regime, had no answer for this, and so they had to reveal their true face if you're paying attention. Of course, they plausible deniability, clandestinism, uh, you know, patsies and everything. So we, we don't, they don't really show their face and then admit it, which is the problem. I think that's why many people, if you're connected to the establishment, you have to believe the illusion. You have to pretend that that never happened. But we know that it happened. And to me, it shows the real character of that regime. And so it can be instructive if we actually honestly comment on it. This is why it really bothers me to hear people like Chris Hedges lie or, or he's just, you know, ignorant about it. Ignorant in that way of like the kind of ignorance that you is, is studious. <laughs> OK, the kind of ignorance where you the cognitive dissonance uh, makes you not absorb new information that would force you to revise your views okay so when he talks about how bobby is so opportunistic to run in 1968 i mean what did that get him what did he how did he benefit from all of his opportunism it's opportunity to get himself killed and he knew that but you know hedges doesn't say that hedges has never you know taken that kind of risk and you know because he's still alive that's the kind of sig system that we live in where the ultimate tribute that they can give you is to assassinate you. Uh, and and uh, to deny that is to deny a, a historic atrocity and to really do, in a sense, PR for this awful regime that Chris Hedges supposedly so seriously opposes, you know. I'm, I'm going to assume he's sincere. Some people will say he's a plant because of his weird positions on, you know, his anti-communism and the way he talks about the Yugoslavian war or those propaganda articles he wrote. Uh, in the run-up to the Iraq War, you know, really terrible stuff that uh, was, he was a water carrier for, uh, you know, he was like a, he almost wrote, he wrote Judith Miller type material. It was really something people have kind of forgotten that. But I don't, you know, I, I'm, I think his other commentary is good and maybe he's just cautious for, uh, you know, career reasons. Maybe he just has a mental block. I don't know, but it really, 
it really does bother me, as you may have guessed. Okay, so what happens, you know, in that 1968, you have MLK gets assassinated and Bobby assassinated in short time, and then that's it. They decapitate the leadership. So whenever you hear any sort of vaguely leftyish person saying, like, we don't need any leaders, that's hierarchical, you know, we need the, the people's microphone and all this, uh, I just, I can't imagine anything like that ever uh, working out. I think that this is just kind of magical thinking from people who have been so for so divorced from power for so long that they don't even uh, have a, a, a real understanding of reality. Another thing I want to talk about is Bobby and the way that he came to the understanding of the assassination. We talk about this, uh, I think, a little bit in the interview, but uh, it's really a, a fascinating story. And to me, it really resonates uh, because... RFK Jr. read the same book that I read around the same time, uh, and it impacted him uh, apparently as well. It was reading JFK and the Unspeakable for me after the failure of the Obama administration, and after I realized, like, wow, what a what a disaster! Like, it, it change. He ran his, his his campaign theme was change, but really, what he was was continuity. I mean, it's the most fundamentally deceptive. Uh, thing really and people don't even usually remark on it it's just uh it's really it's really amazing the power of, of pr and if you have a slick uh vessel also uh, like which obama certainly was so bobby kennedy read bobby kennedy jr read jfk and the unspeakable in 2008 and he was so it moved him so much that he reached out to james douglas and said what can i do to like help you and james douglas says well he, uh you could write a review Bobby said, that's the one thing I can't do, <laughs> which I guess James Douglas would have said, oh, well, thanks. And then instead he says, but how about this? I'm going to write a Rolling Stone article. And he did. He wrote a Rolling Stone article, which was basically like a synopsis of Jet Candy Unspeakable. I'm going to read the first and last paragraphs from this because I think that they're important. They were, this was from about 10 years ago. Uh, it, it was released on uh, November 20th, 19... or 2013, which is just a couple days uh, before the assassination, but it's also RFK Sr.'s birthday, and it's Jim Garrison's birthday, and most importantly, it's my birthday as well. So that's when that article came out, and here's the first paragraph. On November 22nd, 1963, my uncle, President John F. Kennedy, went to Dallas intending to condemn as nonsense the right-wing notion that peace is a sign of weakness. He meant to argue that the best way to demonstrate American strength was not by using destructive weapons and threats, but by being a nation that practice, practices what it preaches about equal rights and social justice, striving toward peace instead of aggressive ambitions. Despite the Cold War rhetoric of his campaign, JFK's greatest ambition as president was to break the militaristic ideology that has dominated our country since World War II. He told his close friend, Ben Bradley, that he wanted the epitaph, he kept the peace, and said to another friend, William Walton, I am almost a peace-at-any-price president. Hugh Sidney, a journalist and friend, wrote that the governing aspect of JFK's leadership was a total revulsion of war. Nevertheless, as James W. Douglas argues in his book JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died and Why It Matters, JFK's presidency would be a continuous struggle with his own military and intelligence agencies. 
which engaged in incessant schemes to trap him into escalating the Cold War into a hot one. His first major confrontation with the Pentagon, the Bay of Pigs catastrophe, came only three months into his presidency and would set the course for the next 1,000 days. That's the opening paragraph, which to me is uh, profound. And um, I mean, this part here, JFK's greatest ambition as president was to break the militaristic ideology that has dominated our country since World War II. So to me, I, I think that that is important to understand. The thing that I would say is missing, but I can understand why, is the economic drivers of it, okay? Because, and if you read JFK and the Unspeakable, James Douglas actually does talk about how all of this is probably a function of people like the Rockefellers who were in charge of crafting the you know, U.S. grand strategy and such, that these economic elites were the real beneficiaries of all this, and so they were driving all of this. But Bobby Kennedy uh, Jr. does not, does not go that route, I think, which is you know, a calculated move, or maybe he really thoroughly believes this. I, I, but I think he understands these things. It's just America is bourgeois to the core, and the critiques that you offer have to be, if you're interested in actually getting in the crazy game of thrones in the United States, you have to accept uh, certain realities. And I think that the reality of U.S. as chronically infected with the bourgeois mind virus, or whatever you want to say, is, uh, I think that's important to consider. Uh, so he doesn't uh, emphasize, overemphasize that the CIA and the Pentagon people are, uh, you know, devoted to Wall Street, that they are uh, essentially the uh, servants of Wall Street in, a, the, in, the, in the final sense, even if rank and file uh, members don't know it. He ends this article, Robert F. Kennedy does this article on JFK's vision of peace in Rolling Stone uh, with this paragraph. JFK's capacity to stand up to the national security apparatus and imagine a different future for America has made him, despite his short presidency, one of the most popular presidents in history. Actually, probably the most popular, but okay. Uh, despite his abbreviated tenure, John F. Kennedy is the only one-term president consistently included in the list of top 10 presidents made by American historians. A 2009 poll of 65 historians ranked him sixth in overall presidential performance just ahead of Jefferson. And today, JFK's great concerns seem more relevant than ever. The dangers of nuclear proliferation, the notion that empire is inconsistent with a republic, and that corporate domination of our democracy at home is the partner of imperial policies abroad. Well, there he actually does say, say this, so props to him for that. He understands the perils to our constitution from a national security state and mistrusted zealots and ideologues. He thought other nations ought to fight their own civil wars and choose their own governments and not ask the U.S. to do it for them. Yet the world he imagined and fought for has receded so far beyond the horizon that it's no longer even part of the permissible narrative inside the beltway or in the mainstream press. Critics who endeavor to debate the survival of American democracy within the national security state risk marginalization as crackpots and kooks. His greatest, most heroic aspirations for a peaceful, demilitarized foreign policy are the forbidden debates of the modern political era. 
Robert Kennedy Jr. has brought this fundamental debate about the U.S. empire back into our political era. And he is paying a price for it. The media berates him and insults him and smears him constantly, which may backfire on them as things develop, because I, I don't see anything positive for the, the current regime. There are the, I don't even have the words, really, to explain how crazy it is. I mean, we follow it day to day, but the significance of some of the things that have happened recently, it should be really astounding. I mean, you have some of these scandals in recent years, like uh, the Epstein thing and what it reveals to people. But look at Russiagate. It has, I mean, we, they've just been testifying in Congress that there was, that the president was briefed on how Hillary, <laughs> the Hillary campaign was conspiring to, uh, to, to basically frame uh, and contrive a case that Trump was a Russian agent. Okay. And then, and they did that. That's a huge scandal. This is, I mean, we, and we know that there was never any substance to the, the core of Russiagate. It's, it obviously was a, you know, what you could call a kind of deep state conspiracy. Like it was people who were government insiders, people who are connected to the national security state and have power uh, and connections to other people in society who can do things with and, and avoid punishment even when they're exposed. I don't know how else to you can interpret that, but this is a huge scandal. These other revelations about uh, the, 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 the lab origin of the virus are looking terrible for uh, the government because and the media because they so actively sought to mislead people about that possibility early on and that comes that's uh, conveyed in those emails that that people have seen where some of the early emails are saying like wow that really looks like one of ours uh, and then you know which is so it's a common thing in, in in those emails where they're talking about how it does seem like a lab like gee it looks a lot like uh, you know some things we are kind of working on. And then later they all circle the wagons and say, nope, it came from a bat and a pangolin. And a, you know. I mean, it, which is, all, it just seems increasingly improbable uh, that that was the case. So, uh, and all this stuff with Biden and Hunter Biden is actually quite scandalous. Uh, and, and yet there's nothing happening about it. There's no, there doesn't seem to be much of a chance that the guilty are going get, to get published. And this is just more of the same. So this is these are very weird times, but the fact that he's talking about these things and bringing it to light now, right when the U.S. really can't continue the, the empire anymore, this is remarkable. I want to read from American Exception, uh, a, a very, the very end of the book, really. And this is... I, this will, I, I hope, will help anyone who's like thinking, like, why would uh, you support this liberal guy this liberal reformer guy when uh, your, your, you know your politics are more radical than that i think that i would hope that this might clarify things and show that this isn't like a something that comes out of the blue it actually conforms to things i've written and argued earlier okay this is uh this starts on page 287 for those of you that have the book as i argued in 2021 the hegemony of organized money over society did not arise by accident it involved a series of coup d'etat profond, or strokes of the deep state. Many of these events are documented in this book. They've contributed to the rise of the deep state system, and they are continuing to concentrate more and more wealth and power in the deep state. 
It is becoming so dire that even former U.S. high officials are sounding like scholars of deep politics these days. Retired Army Colonel and former Chief of Staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell recently said in an interview, what is really haunting us is a distribution of wealth unprecedented in our history, but it really won't change much because the deep state's in charge and the deep state ain't Donald Trump and it ain't Joe Biden. Deep state is 0.001% of the United States of America that owns the wealth equivalent to the GDP of Brazil. And they aren't going to let anything change that's against their purposes. And their purposes are evolving and they scare me. They scare me to death because their purposes are looking more and more like AI and robotics will eliminate what capitalism, predatory capitalism in particular, has always wanted to eliminate its most uh, pricey component, uh, labor. Get rid of it. What does that mean? Well, it probably means a period of slavery. I mean, abject slavery for the average worker replaced by a period of, we don't need you anymore, let's conjure up a coronavirus or something to get rid of you, and that's replace you with technology. This is scary, but I really think that is part of what's happening right now. That's the new dimension of the 21st century that truly disturbs me, along with nuclear weapons and climate change. While it's difficult to know what to make of this, it is increasingly clear that these dynamics can only lead to more totalizing forms of despotism if they are not reversed. In the face of these grim historical trends, what are the prospects for making the necessary changes? In conversation with Lance DeHaven Smith, he offered a novel suggestion. Use the state to uphold the law and prosecute the perpetrators of state crimes against democracy. Were it feasible, such would be quite an agreeable solution. Unfortunately, lawlessness, you know, gangsterism, uh, and the weakness of the public state likely precludes such a course. Peter Phillips and Ralph Nader offer a solution in the so crazy it just might work mold. They make an appeal to the humanity and enlightened self-interest of politico-economic elites. It is true that no one really benefits if human civilization is destroyed or forced to endure unprecedented calamity. The press and other potentially reformist liberal institutions are so impoverished that it is difficult to imagine the impact they might have if they were allowed to operate without first and foremost having to please the corporate rich. To visualize the potential for truly independent media, imagine media outlets like The Intercept, if The Intercept were not controlled by a deep state-connected tech oligarch. Perhaps a more likely hopeful scenario would involve other nations escaping the orbit of U.S. imperialism and achieving material prosperity as a result. Russia is saddled with its own rentier oligarchy. A large part of this reality stems from the U.S.-rigged re-election of Boris Yeltsin, as well as U.S.-imposed shock therapy. At any rate, Russia alone is not likely to lead a transition to a multipolar world governed by international law. China, on the other hand, appears to be the real rival to the U.S. The Chinese have experienced massive economic growth within the U.S.-dominated global capitalist system. One key to Chinese success has been the country's refusal to follow the demonstrably disastrous dictates of neoliberalism. In China, the state controls the commanding heights of the economy. In the U.S., and wherever the U.S. holds sway, it is the other way around. Recently, the Chinese leadership has taken steps to raise the living standards by cracking down on profiteering in the education, healthcare, and housing sectors. In America, these sectors extract vast sums of wealth from those Americans who choose to get an education, see a doctor, or not be homeless. But unlike China, these parasitic rentier interests in America enjoy a divine right of racketeering. China, we are told, is authoritarian. Having democracy 
apparently means that the vast majority of the population must submit to being exploited by a tiny privileged elite. But perhaps China is becoming that which the U.S. has tried so hard to preempt or crush anywhere and everywhere, a good economic example that could provide a model and a lifeline for other long-suffering peoples in the global south. As for the Americans, perhaps a way forward could involve some kind of revelation that would expose the scope of the totalizing subversion of U.S. democracy by deep political forces. The political assassinations of the 1960s have that potential. This explains why they are still obscured through ongoing disinformation operations even more than 50 years after the fact. Perhaps a whistleblower or a coalition of high-level officials could collaborate to orchestrate just such a revelation or series of revelations. Another possibility would involve using the electoral system to affect some sort of novel form of democratic state capture. Imagine if democratic forces were to seize control of the government and use its authority to assert and apply the rule of law throughout the various organs of the state, even going so far as to force these extra-legal deep state persons and entities to operate transparently and lawfully. As a corollary, state secrecy must be radically reformed. Overriding access to state secrets should be vested in elected officials and divested from deep state apparatchiks. Few things are as emblematic of our Kafkaesque system as the fact that two presidents, Nixon and Clinton, tried unsuccessfully to pry JFK assassination secrets out of the CIA. Overriding secrecy and the exception to the rule of law must be divested from opaque and unaccountable entities. In the meantime, all of the tripartite state's efforts to further centralize surveillance, economic power, and social control should be resisted. The tripartite state is not humanity's protector. Okay? The U.S. empire is not humanity's protector. In 1973, CIA psychological operatives in Chile scrawled graffiti on the sides of buildings that read Jakarta Se Acerca. Jakarta is coming. This was a reference to the massive CIA-orchestrated 1965 bloodletting in Indonesia, which overthrew Sukarno and made the company safe for U.S. corporations like Freeport Sulphur. The American and Indonesian governments have never acknowledged the truth of these events, but we must confront these sorts of dark truths if we are to move forward as a civilization. To paraphrase Peter Dale Scott, we must come to Jakarta. So I say a lot there, I think, and... I want to try to relate this to the RFK Jr. campaign and see how it stacks up. So when he talks about the distribution of wealth in this country, he's echoing what Larry Wilkerson was saying, who is a basically conservative guy. And even Larry Wilkerson is saying, my God, we're at the point where like that they don't even really have much use for these workers, that they're so corrupt and rich. You know, they might even make a virus and kill all the workers once they don't need them because of AI and robotics. It's really scary. It's a totalitarian future we're going towards. Well, RFK Jr. also talks about this. He says we're headed towards a totalitarian future. We have no middle class, uh, and these corporate greed is is destroying this middle class, and it's making us a more violent and, and insecure society. Okay, so this is he's a guy speaking to this uh, when the other candidates really aren't. Additionally... Um, he talks about what Lance DeHaven Smith was saying. This is what Lance always said to me. It was just like, we should just, uh, he would be more blunt about it. Lance would say like, we should hang the bastards. Cause I would say like, well, maybe there should be like truth and reconciliation, some kind of amnesty. And Lance was just not having it. 
public administration guy. He was like, we should hang the bastards. <laughs> this is, I always, I love Lance's fighting spirit uh, and I miss him all the time. But, you know, use the state to uphold the law and prosecute the perpetrators of state crimes against democracy. Well, I mean, this is, RFK Jr. is talking about applying the law to elites and, you know, exposing these scandals and state crimes. Okay, Peter Phillips and Ralph Nader talking about the rich, some, some segment of the rich really pitching in and trying to, like, lead the reforms. Well, I mean, RFK Jr. is not a poor person himself, and he does have support from wealthy people uh, like Joe Rogan and uh, the Twitter guy. I mean, it's uh, it's it, it's very interesting to me. People that I don't think of as like, uh, you know, individuals I would ever be learning from politically. But I, I think that the totalitarian nightmare that we are headed towards is really not in the, in line with what uh, many people want, even more and more of the super rich, especially as the empire is just not going to be there. Like what, being able to tell the whole world how it's going to be, that's what makes this all possible. And that's, they can't have that even if they want it. And as RFK points out in the, when I interviewed him, he said, I was, I was making the same argument. He said, yeah, the, the U S empire has collapsed. He was saying it more categorically than I was, which was to me, uh, really amazing. The other aspect of it, um, you know, also thinking about independent media is another part of this, just to, to add on there to the end. I mean, it really has been a huge thing. Look at this, uh, at how this is going. You have Joe Rogan is the most popular media person in the United States. Uh, it, it's really remarkable. And it's mainly because I, I think because he has some independence from, you know, he doesn't have to be a minion of big farmer pharma uh, directly or, or any other industry. It, it's, you know, he doesn't even have to be that it's not that what he does is so, you know, uh, brilliant day in and day out. He's a likable guy who seems like a, a, a normal person who can speak to people and sometimes respond in a way that I think a lot of people can relate to because most people aren't leftist academics or, or you know, pick, pick whatever thing you want. But so the media is changing somewhat despite it being, you know, despite the usual suspects doing the bad things they do. I mean, this is why do you think they're talking about censorship on social media and other things and cracking down on quote unquote misinformation, right? They obviously are worried about the changing media landscape. Okay, now this other part has happened that I wrote about. Perhaps a more likely hopeful scenario would involve other nations escaping the orbit of US imperialism and achieving material prosperity as a result. Well, what China has done leading the way in this regard and even Russia has greatly raised living standards since the era of Yeltsin uh, combined together, these are a huge challenge to the U.S. because especially China is the threat of a good example on steroids that they've always feared. I mean, they would crush like Grenada. They invaded Grenada to keep them from being able to set a good example. But now China has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Uh, this is remarkable. They are, you know, a kind of mixed economy, but it's easy enough to argue that like they're kind of following what Marx said, that you can't just create socialism before you have capitalism. So, you know, people can argue about that all the time. I'm going to find, I find it uh, unimaginably tedious to be arguing about whether you want to be a Maoist or a, a, a Dungist, you know, Deng Xiaoping, um, because I just can't imagine a bigger waste of my time than trying to like argue about that from here in the United States. But this is something that has happened. The rest of the world is finally able to uh, break away and we're seeing alliances between 
you know, peace deals between Saudi Arabia and Iran. They formed this new uh, alliance in the Persian Gulf. Uh, the, the in the in Latin America, uh, the you have the victory of Lula, the overturning of the coup regime in Bolivia. You know, there are other things that are encouraging. You got to ignore Peru for a second, but this is all uh, remarkable to me. And um, it's so this is this is also going to lead to I think the the end of it's going to contribute to the end of the U.S. empire that it, it can't control this dollar regime. And that's going to force the U.S. to act like a normal country eventually. Now, additionally, OK, I say a way forward could involve some kind of revelation that would expose the scope of the totalizing subversion of U.S. democracy by deep political forces. Well, RFK Jr. is out there saying more about this than any candidate in my lifetime. I mean, really, since I think Dick, I think Dick Gregory made some runs for president when he talked a lot about the MLK assassinations and the Kennedy assassinations, which is, you know, that's a, that's remarkable, but it's a protest candidacy because obviously he's not going to do enough to really threaten the establishment with that great guy that he was. Um, but RFK has been out there saying, I wasn't going to release the secrets that these agencies are in violation of the law. They were supposed to release them all in 2016. I don't know why they didn't. Uh, the CIA killed my uncle. Uh, that's, been shown beyond a reasonable doubt, and I, they were in all likelihood involved in the death of my father, but it's, they were, it's more fuzzy, the evidence, but it, it, there are many things to point to that. This is remarkable for him to be saying this. It is remarkable, and it's, that's the reason why they don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about the foreign policy because the U.S. foreign policy and the assassinations, I mean, the establishment's case is indefensible, so they'd rather just say anti-vaxxer, anti-vaxxer, even if Robert Kennedy is vaccinated and has his children vaccinated and has repeatedly stated that he is for having safe vaccines. Like they'll still call him that because they've already put a lot of effort into that publicity campaign. And uh, that's better. They'd rather talk about that than uh, imperialism or the JFK assassination. OK, when I say state secrecy must be radically reformed, uh, Kennedy seems to share that idea as well. He said that whistleblowers should be pardoned. You know, like he wants to pardon Ed Snowden uh, and pardon Julian Assange or, or, or at least free Julian Assange and that whistleblowers should be rewarded if they reveal state crimes. This is, this is, a, this is remarkable. This is so different from what we're hearing from the others, the other candidates. I mean, this is really significant. I mean, as it stands now, the, the law, uh, the, the state, state power and the legal system will crush you if you reveal the crimes of the powerful. It's a horrific, uh, you know, tyrannical system. If the, the, what can you say about this kind of a system? You expose the crimes of the state and the state puts you, uh, tortures you. And you know, like they did to the guy that revealed Vault 7 um, or like what they're doing to Julian Assange, who isn't even a U.S. citizen. This is where Robert Kennedy Jr. has explicitly denounced all of these things. And I think that he is sincere about it. And so for all these reasons, the, what he, my, I, I hope this would clarify this for anybody who thinks that I've gone off the deep end or uh, about supporting RFK or that it's somehow inconsistent with anything else I've said. Um, I, I you know he seems to have a deep understanding of these issues and has somehow been able to speak about these extremely important issues, these existential issues in a way that connects to people from different political positions in America and perspectives 
uh, I think that that is uh, remarkable. And I think that he, the idea that he would be insincere about what he writes about JFK and the unspeakable, which is very much in line with my own take on this, which is a radical critique of the, the history of the, the last you know, 70 years. Uh, I, I cannot believe that he's insincere about that because it would just be so cynical and inhuman to, given what happened to his father, to cynically exploit that to like make up some narrative because you really just want to be another, the next Joe Biden and have the trappings of power. It just doesn't fit with anything he's done in the rest of his life and his biography for him to have that level of cynicism. So I think that he is sincere. And even if he's wrong, if the science eventually proves him incorrect about the vaccines, even having the courage to take on uh, rich and powerful entities with that much sway in our system and have so many people say such horrible things about you all the time, but yet you persist, that to me uh, shows character and courage. And it's kind of the anti-Bernie. You know, Bernie above all didn't want to be Ralph Nader, but RFK is already way worse than, he's already treated way worse than Nader ever was. So to me, anyone who's willing to take that kind of abuse on and bring it on himself and continue to do things that he knows will only heap more scorn and derision on him from very powerful actors, to me, uh, that's uh, quite respectable as someone who did also anathematize himself by saying things that uh, threatened orthodoxies. You know, I tip my cap to Robert F. F. Kennedy uh, Regard whether he ends up being vindicated or not on this score, I believe he's he's honest and showed integrity and character just for standing up to such entities uh, the way that he has. I hope this episode has served not just to point you toward Dick Russell's excellent book, but also to explain why I would put this uh, crown of you know thorns or whatever on my head by supporting RFK Jr. when the whole power of the U.S. oligarchy's publicity machine is dedicated to making him completely radioactive. Well, it's because I think, as I've said, that he is sincere about wanting to defeat the criminal imperial regime that rules us and has crushed human progress to the maximum extent possible since basically the end of World War II. As with John F. Kennedy to be viable in this insane system, one must make all sorts of compromises because RFK Jr. is going directly at the core of the regime's institutional power He's compelled to try and find a totally novel electoral coalition, including people that are anathema to the doctrinaire left, actual conservative Americans who RFK hopes are also angry about corruption, endless war, and the despotic violation of constitutionally protected civil liberties. I think he means what he says, that he wants to do the things he knows got his father killed, ending the war machine, fighting the mob, fighting corporate corruption, and even pursuing justice for historic high crimes like the JFK assassination. Recall that the Kennedys took on Wall Street, okay, with U.S. Steel. They took on the mob. You know, they deported Carlos Marcelo to Central America, and they jailed Jimmy Hoffa. They took on the CIA, fired Alan Dulles and Cabell and Bissell. Uh, they, they stood up to Israel. Even, JFK sends a letter to Israel saying, if you don't allow these inspections at Demona, the Demona nuclear facility, then we're going to have to consider, reconsider our aid to you. And then Mingurian resigns rather than take receipt of the letter. Okay, that's remarkable. Also took on the Pentagon, because every time the Pentagon said, we need to send troops to this uh, area so we can fight this war, every time they did that, JFK said no. JFK always refused hot war. 
Uh, RFK Jr. knows about all this, and he's had his whole life to think about it. I believe he is sincerely motivated, first and foremost, to ending the U.S. empire and restoring some semblance of democracy and the rule of law. As you can hear in his recent peace speech, he understands the existential stakes for the U.S. and for the world. What is different now compared to years past is that the option for empire for a new American century has vanished. Something must change. If they double down, they will lose internationally regardless, in my estimation. And if the domestic response is more fascism, it will be clear that not only is the substance of U.S. hegemony gone, the freedom and democracy branding will be gone as well, leaving the U.S. regime with nothing but its own despotism, keeping itself in power for its own sake, nakedly illegitimate, and presiding over an ever more corrupt and dysfunctional society. Bobby is running to offer the country a chance, maybe the last chance, to make America exceptional in world history as the hegemon that voluntarily wound down its imperial dominance rather than holding on to the bitter end, thereby imperiling human existence in the process. Given that these are the stakes, I don't care about damaging my brand by supporting Robert Kennedy Jr. Um, I didn't tell the truth about the U.S. empire in my academic work, costing myself a high school teaching job and making myself anathema in academia. I didn't do all that just so I could be a, a you know, cowardly entrepreneur selling sanitized podcast episodes to an audience of, uh, you know, customers whose biases and tastes and prejudices are going to determine everything I say. I, I would, I don't want to, I never wanted to do that. I've been doing this after the education I got from my Obama experience, because I think the U.S. empire is the greatest threat humanity has ever faced. Ending it must be the top priority of every person with the insight to understand the scale of what we're facing. If RFK Jr. can knowingly put himself in danger of being assassinated like his uncle and father were, I can suffer, uh, you know, internet trolls and, and other things like that. Given the stakes, if I didn't try, how could I live with myself or face, you know, face my own son? Because I know that his future cannot but be hugely impacted by the way that the end of the U.S. empire is going to play out. Friends, I hope this is illuminating, and I hope it might encourage you, if you've managed to listen to this to the end, I hope it might encourage you, at least some of you, to keep on chasing the light. <laughs>